We continue on through the book of Nehemiah. We're going to cover the first 13 verses of chapter 5, Nehemiah 5, 1 through 13, and the theme is the upside-down kingdom. Now, we'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, of course, we're referring to the kingdom of God, uh, but here's the big idea. Um, Nehemiah is facing, uh, within the Jewish community as they're rebuilding the wall, he's facing oppression and inequality. Um, there's all kinds of social justice issues happening in the, the group of believers who are helping out. And so um, he responds in, in a pretty radical way, um, and he goes above and beyond, and we're going to study uh, what that mean, meant for them and what it means for us. But let me just, let me just ask you a question, and, and I want you to think about it for a second, and then I'm going to ask for a reasoning behind it. Um, does God want equality for us on earth or inequality? Equality, what you know about the Bible, what you think about God, how would you answer that? Does God want equality or inequality? Some of you are looking at me like it's a trick question. What do you think? You guys are smart. Any guesses? Okay. All right. Okay. So we're going back to the basics of there's there's some some I mean what does the Bible say about equality and the way that humans interact with each other? Is it for it or is it against it? You guys are scared to answer. <laughs> this is this. for sure. So yeah, part of what the Bible says is that sometimes life is unequal, um, and and that there's a level of functioning within that inequality. Okay, um, would anyone just say equality? I mean, that feels like a safe bet, right? Oh, come on. I mean, there's some Bible verses, like God shows no partiality, um, that God doesn't look on the outside, but on the inside. So it's not a matter of skin or, or skin color or um, uh, gender. Um, there's some equality there. Um, or how about Galatians 3? Paul says that there's neither male or female, Greek or Jew, slave nor free. Like in Christ, we're one. Hopefully you guys... No, like there's some there's a bunch of verses about e- equality, um, but there's also a bunch of verses about inequality, and there's a positive inequality and a negative inequality. And what our world faces, because this is such a hot button topic, even here in America, when it comes to genders, race, um, social classes, poor and rich, there's all kinds of negative inequality, forced inequality, where someone said, "I want to get above, and so I'm going to have to push you down." That's the bad kind of inequality. But there's a different kind of inequality. One that we're called to in the kingdom of God, where Jesus is the king and we're the servants and we live differently and we don't just take um, 
what we have and say, well, we want everyone to have what we have, we actually lower ourselves in humility and exalt our neighbor. And so it's a voluntary uh, inequality that we're called in the kingdom of God. That's what makes it the upside down kingdom. It's both. And I'll say this about the world and, and what you see on the news and just the idea of social justice right now, because obviously this is as hot button topic as, as we can find. Um, it's a huge deal. Um, I mean, you can't even watch sports networks anymore without hearing about uh, inequality on the field or the court or whatever it might be. Um, here's what I would say. Two things about what you see on the news that you should be aware of. Um, the world's idea of equality and social justice is at best incomplete, at worst deceptive. What I mean is it's a matter of destination and motivation. Motivation, this is the at worst deceptive part, is that there are civil rights groups in our country that are not, they're under the skies of, of equality, but they're not really for equality. And what I mean is they have a hostility and an anger and a resentment because they've been, whether it be a minority, whatever the case might be, they've been oppressed in some way, shape, or form. And so I'm not going to name names, but you can turn on the news and hear names of these civil rights groups. And it's not about just getting equal. It's about getting equal and then oppressing the other person because we're ticked off at the way we've been treated for all these years. There's an anger. It's not about equality. It's about equality so we can get that foothold to have inequality where we can now be the big dogs on top. And I'm just going to let your mind just sift through what I might be talking about there. Whereas true equality, biblically, you've got to have a heart that's motivated by grace. Um, and it's not hostility or bitterness or resentment. Like you don't fight evil with evil. Now on the flip side, the other issue with what you see on the news and, and the social justice that the world gives right now, uh, because this train is moving right through our country and people say, well, the church needs to get involved with more social justice stuff. And we'll obviously address that tonight. But the destination, and this is what I would say, social justice in our world, um, um, outside of the church, is at best incomplete. Because they view equality as the highest good. And it's not about just being equal with the people around us. We know that in the church. Because we can all have the same possessions, the same job uh, pay, the same everything. We could all be treated the same, and we could all go to hell. Like at the end of the day, what would it accomplish for us just to have equality if this life is temporary? And so it's not that equality is bad. No, the Bible supports equality, but it takes it one step further and says when you follow Jesus, you're going to recognize the greatest symbol of inequality that's ever been given is the cross. This is the gospel. That God made himself man, and he, even though he didn't deserve it, took a death and a punishment that we deserved. It is not equal. Like, we, we are thankful for God's inequality because it saves our souls. And let me just throw this, as a, throw this out there. That we're Jewish people, and they're Jewish people. Why are we treating each other like this? Yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. Remember, um, Again, when it comes to slavery, God sometimes sets them free. The Egyptians took the Israelites, you're free. On the other hand, he tells people like you read in Flamen and you hear Onesimus in the New Testament and they say, 
you're a slave. Go back to your owner, and here's how to function under that. Um, there's laws for slavery, even in uh, the, the first five books of the Bible, particularly Deuteronomy. You'll see there's laws for um, people taking other people in for um, short times of slavery. For the Jews, they could have slaves for six years, but they were told the year of Jubilee, the seventh year, you're supposed to let um, everyone go free and, and return them back to the life that they had before. And so some of these people, had the debt collectors had been uh, come and calling. And they said, our sons and daughters are working to pay off our debts, is what's happening. And it is not in our power to help it, because they're building a wall. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. All right. So let's just park on this just a little bit. We just went through a whole bunch of issues. Whole bunch of issues. I mean, you got, you got famine issues. You got poverty issues. You got political power issues. You got debt issues. You got slavery issues. When it comes to social justice... This inequality and oppression, this runs the gamut. This runs the gamut. Some of us think about where we're living, and we think about turning on the TV, and we think, man, I'm, I know um, this obviously happened in the Bible, but I'm sick of hearing it. I turn on the news, and it's all I hear all the time, inequality issues, and uh, just, just uh, you know, this is happening in the inner city, and it's happening on the coast, but uh, here in Kansas, can't we talk about other things? It's happening in our community. It's happening all over the place. I've talked, I've sat down just in Salina and talked to uh, people about racism they experience, right? But, but you got to listen. You got to hear them. Um, you'd say, well, okay, that's one thing. There's prejudice happening, right? Um, there's obviously class issues with poor and rich and, and whatnot. I mean, part of the heart of capitalism allows for that, quite frankly. That's part of the American dream. There's going to be some issues, and you just need to know living in this country, um, part of it's founded on that. Like, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm not condoning it. I'm just saying um, that's reality. But you say, well, things like sex trafficking didn't happen. Do you know the little road up north <laughs> called I-70? We just went to Omaha a couple weekends ago. I-80? There's all kinds of things happening. It's happening in our own backyard. But do you know about it? Are you positioning yourself to know in your community um, what's happening? Do you know of people who are oppressed? Do you know of people who are hurting? And if not, does that say that it's not happening? Or does it say that you're not listening, that you're not seeking? Are you asking questions? Um, how involved in the community are you? When you hear someone talk like I'm talking now, do you just think, eh, I'm going to go back to putting my head in the sand and pretend like that's not actually happening? Or do you think, man, we can get involved. We can't do everything, but we could do something. We could help. Somehow we can help. But you've got to know that there are problems to know how to help. And you've got to listen. Some of us want to give solutions. We want to give answers before we even listen. There's power in just listening to people, just asking them questions, just hearing their heart, hearing their experience. This is an art to some degree that we've lost. It used to just be called um, empathy and conversation, but we, we don't like that because we're used to sitting behind computer screens now and we just tell people what we know we won't be held accountable for and we don't care what they're typing. We just are going to type what we think and we go from blog to blog or post to post and we just rifle off the same stuff regurgitated in different words and we think somehow we're helping. But we don't ever sit down and just sit with people. Because you recognize when we as Christians reach out in any way, shape, or form, we, if people know we're Christians, they, in, in, in their eyes, they see us as representing God. So we've got to treat them like God would treat them. We've got to react because we're standing in a gap we don't realize sometimes. 
You're an ambassador of Christ. I, um, I know the Lord gives us opportunities all the time, and even from a church perspective corporately, um, we've got to make sure that we're taking care of people. I, we were, it it might have been the same week um, that we had like our vision night, and we talked about raising all this money for, um, for a new building. And, of course, I think it's a, it's a good thing. It's, um, we could talk about it all night. There's a lot involved there, um, pros and cons to it. But there was one gal um, I just kind of had on my heart. I hadn't seen her in a while in church, and I kind of do welfare checks, for lack of better terms. I just, you know, I call people if I haven't seen them in a while and see how they're doing, make sure they're not suffering in silence, because a lot of folks will. And you could say, come talk to me all day long, but sometimes you got to chase them a bit. And so I, I called and I said, how are you doing? And she just said, um, not good. I'm having a hard time paying my bills and just pray for me, pray for my job. She was humble in it all. She didn't ask for anything. I said, we're going to help you. She said, no, you don't have to. I said, no, we're going to help you. She said, no, no, that's not what. And I said, I called you. You didn't call me. And I didn't tell her this, but here's what I was thinking in my head. There ain't no way we're going to go raise a bunch of money to buy a building if we're not going to take care of our own. And you got to have that mindset. There's a million things to be thinking about, but all around you, on your best day, when you're celebrating with your family, when you're sitting around the table, you got to recognize there's someone not sitting around a table, not included, not with people who love them, people who are hurting. There's kids, there's foster kids, there's kids on the street, there's people broken all over us. You don't have to go very far to find it, but you got to want to listen, and you got to ask questions. Do you know who's hurting in this city? Let me ask you, do you know who's hurting in this church? Do you know who's hurting in your grow group? Do you know who's hurting in your family? You got to ask questions and you got to listen. Number two, you got to learn to respond like Jesus. Now, I'm not just talking sweet love and kindness. There's all kinds of good in that, but I'm talking about anger. It says in verse 6, I was very angry, that's what Nehemiah says, when I heard their outcry and these words, I took counsel with myself. It's good to feel conviction, right? You can argue righteous anger versus um, unrighteous all day long. Here's the bottom line. Jesus got angry, did he not? He saw injustice, he saw issues. When did Jesus, well, let's, let's pull back just a second. Nehemiah's angry. Why do you think Nehemiah's angry? He's angry, not just because there's issues of poverty. He's angry because it's the Jews preying on the misfortune of others. Because he knows God's word warned against this. And he knows that nations have preyed on the misfortune and the weakness of the Jews. And now he sees his own people consuming his own people, right? So he's going from listening to anger to eventually he's going to go to action. But why, when we talk about Jesus, why did he get angry? We see why Nehemiah got angry. Why did Jesus get angry? Do you remember when he got angry? Temple? Yeah. What was it about the temple that made him angry? Misusing it. Yeah, he said, you, this was supposed to be a house of prayer. He's quoting the Old Testament. But you've made it a den of thieves. Why? Was it just that they were buying and selling stuff? 
No, I mean, there's court of the Gentiles. You can do about anything in the court of the Gentiles. The issue is that people were traveling from far away to the temple because they were devoted to God and they wanted to sacrifice. But I don't know about y'all, you can't carry all your possessions when you're going to be walking sometimes 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles. And they knew there's going to be people, especially poor people. They're going to show up and they're going to want a sacrifice. They're going to need a sacrifice and we can sell it to them. And guess what? They didn't always have fair prices. And Jesus said, you know these people are devoted to God. And he's ultimately ticked off because he's saying, you know they're going to come, and you know they're going to need a sacrifice, and you're sitting here with all the stuff, and you're going to charge them way more than you should. That was the very core of the issue. Which, by the way, just out of, as a side note, I've had people say, well, why do churches sell stuff? You want to know all that stuff over there? Every dollar of profit, every dime of profit, every penny of profit goes to uh, Love Justice International to take people, particularly young girls, out of sex trafficking. Every hundred dollars we give, um, to whatever degree, equals one girl they're going to take out of sex trafficking in other countries. Um, If people want a stupid shirt, they can have a stupid shirt. (laughs) But they're going to minister by buying that shirt. It's not going to harm people. It's going to bless people. And we're going to we're going to make an impact in the kingdom. And so it's not just an issue of buying and selling. It's preying on the people of God. Their misfortune. I am. Um, I remember when I went to school down in Hutch and I was um, studying to be a firefighter. And I was, I don't know, I was probably like two-thirds of the way done. And I needed a job because I was a convicted felon. I thought, well, this is kind of hard to get a job. I don't know if you ever thought about that. But I, I couldn't get a job for nothing. I tried to be a... Um, dishwasher like several places in town no one would hire me no one would call me back I couldn't even get an interview and and so then I saw in the paper I saw this deal about selling fire alarms and and I'm sure I've I've shared parts of the story before but um I thought okay I'll give them a call and they said why don't you come in for an interview and as a young guy 20 21 years old I'm thinking wow this is pretty good and when you're thinking firefighting, you're just thinking, it's all good. Surely this is all good. And they said, yeah, just come to this hotel um, down in Heston, right there on the interstate. You can, we're going to have interviews all day. And you're thinking, wow, I already got an interview. I must be pretty special. I mean, I told them I was in fire science. I was doing all right at school. Everything is good. Um, I just thought, man, they're impressed over the phone. I show up, and people are running through this game. And here's the big idea. They're just looking for um, the naive people in the bunch to take part of them in their pyramid scheme is what's happening, right? And, and so um, they interview you, and in five minutes they're like, yeah, we'll take you. If you'll take us, kind of, you know, <laughs> under their breath kind of thing. And so I was like, oh, this is going to be good. And I remember even one guy, he worked for the fire department down in Bueller, had a wife and kids, and, and he was doing good. He even quit his job to take this. And people were like, don't quit your job. And I was saying, why? Well, if he wants to quit his job, quit his job. It turned out bad. It turned out bad for me. I got into this, and I started realizing this big pyramid scheme. They were charged $300 for a, a fire alarm that ultimately cost like, 20, 30 bucks to make, but there was a bunch of people who needed to get their $50 out of it, right? You guys know how pyramid schemes work. And so um, the guy at the top comes and he starts training me. I'm like, how do you, how do you get people? How do you go and sell these, these fire alarms to people? And he says, well, um, here's what you do. He started teaching me these tactics. And at first I thought, oh, this is going to be a really good thing, right? And, and he said, you just go to gas stations, particularly in little towns, because that's where people are naive. And so you go to these little towns because you've got the farmers and you've got people who they're going to eat this up. And I'm thinking, okay, what are you, what are you talking about? I'm from a little town. I'm like, I'm, I don't think I'm naive. I was naive. But anyway, um, you go and you set up a box. And so maybe you've seen these at gas stations. You set up a box that says, 
fill out your name for a free dinner, free chicken dinner at whatever the local restaurant is. And so then you get all these names and you call these people and tell them you're going to come at a certain time and we're going to give uh, just an hour-long presentation, but you will get a free meal. And you do give them a free meal, but you got all their contact info and then you're going to go door-to-door back to those people after you made them sit through your one-hour thing, um, convincing a bunch of them to go to your house and you're going to end up spending, you're, you're going to end up getting them to, to spend two, three thousand bucks on a fire alarm system, right? Because they're just good-hearted people who are trusting you and you're a punk, and the first time or two I went and saw this, I thought, this is uncomfortable. I'm sitting in the homes of people who couldn't afford probably their mortgage, and we're trying to sell them a $2,000 smoke alarm system. But I, I wasn't grasping what was happening. But this is the day that it hit me, and I just said, mm, I'm out. I wasn't selling any of these things. Because <laughs> I'm thinking this isn't worth it. It's hard to be good at something that you don't believe in. And um, he said, here's the primary way we get people. I said, okay, tell me. He's like, you just get online and you look at um, newspapers all across the state of Kansas. And you look for tragedy. You look for fires. And when you see those fires, houses burned down, you go to that neighborhood. And you go to the family who just might have lost everything. And you go to all the neighbors and you knock on doors and you sell them fire alarms. Because they're all freaked out. Like you get what he's doing. You're preying on people's tragedy people's misfortune said no nope he looked at me one day he said you're not going to do this are you i said no (laughs) this is ridiculous and he went on to the next sucker here's the thing when we see stuff like this in our society they seem like in capitalism credible businesses there's stuff like this all over the place and we should respond like jesus meaning we get angry that we have conviction this is socioeconomic slavery i'm going to be honest with you this when you drive down and you see the speedy cash or the helping hand you need to know socioeconomic slavery it should tick you off when those stupid buildings pop up in our community you want to know where they pop up you think it's on the wealthy side of town No. It's going to be where the lower class folks are because they're going to know you're going to come in for 500 bucks, you're going to end up spending 3,000 to get your 500 paid off. Or you just gave us your car. And they know that people make bad decisions, people find themselves in hard spots, whether it's their fault or not, they do, and they're going to come to them and they call it a helping hand. And those people have justified that they're doing okay. You hear Planned Parenthood stuff? You say, it sounds like they're offering medical services to ladies who need it. No, ladies who are freaked out, scared to death, don't know where to turn. And they're going to offer things that are not just. It should tick us off. I could just say, go out and love people like Jesus. Sometimes we should get ticked off like Jesus. But it needs to lead to action. Verses 7b through 11. Number three, learn to magnify solutions more than problems. Mm. He says, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. So he's doing something. Now his listening led to anger, led to action. He's going to do something. I said to them, you are exacting interest. So that was against the Jewish law. Each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against him. So I'm going to get everyone together. We're going to call out what's happening. And he said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers. So remember, they're all coming from exile. Some of them had been um, in, in rough places, even in slavery, in other countries around them. And they had bought them back. 
who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brother. So, it's, so we're out here trying to get our Jewish family back from all these other nations, and you're sitting here behind our backs selling them. You're taking advantage of them. That they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. That's what happens when you get called out. And so I said in verse 9, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? One reason God said this is all going to happen in Deuteronomy is I want you to live different so the other nations see you and see Israel as a light. That's what happens. If you're my people, you should, you should be pointing to me. Everyone acts wicked all over the world, but I want Israel to act different. But he knows they're, just, they're taunting us now because we're acting just like them. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money. Some believe that Nehemiah must have come from a big family um, and he had been helping the people. Lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Now, this is the key. This is key. Verse 11. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. So they had this. You wanted that. So you could get up here. I'm telling you to not just bring them up here. I'm telling you to give back what they had and, and lower yourself and give back everything that you took from them. This is why verse 11 is so important. It's showing us a little bit about the kingdom we're living in under Christ. But it's also saying he went from calling out the issue, voicing the concern about the issue, to actually offering a solution. Here's one thing you'll notice when you turn on the news. Everyone wants to be a voice. Everyone wants to call out the problems. All day long, people can say, this is what's wrong with our country you got talking heads arguing about, well, I think it's this kind of wrong. No, I think it's this kind of wrong. Well, it's your that's wrong. It's me that's wrong. It's us that's wrong. It's the other person wrong. Everyone just wants to blame somebody. Sometimes I don't think people care that much about justice. They just want someone to blame. They just want to be a victim. But it's one thing to call out the issue. Who has solutions? And Nehemiah is saying, I'm going to call you out, but I'm also going to offer the solution. Here's what we need to do. Some of us say, yeah, this is good. Social justice coming back into the church like it should. Let's take action. It's sad on one hand that social justice needs to re-enter the church. By and large, because we should be doing these things in many cases already. But the form of social justice that's entering many denominations is one that excludes the gospel. It's not an outpouring of the good news or a response of the good news. It's in replace of the good news. Because here's the thing. You won't get criticized if you help someone over here as much as you will if you tell them about Jesus. And it's the safe, easy way to make it look like your nonprofit, your church, is doing a good thing for your city. And some denominations have shifted completely to simply a place of social justice. And there's not much proclamation of the gospel. You take social justice, you take action, but you add the great commission that we are to make disciples. Here's the thing. It's not... It's not that we shouldn't give them a drink of water. We give them a drink of water. But the drink of the water is not the good news. 
The good news is they don't have to thirst spiritually anymore in Christ. And so you do both. You don't do one. If you just proclaim the gospel, but you don't care about taking care of people's physical needs, you're going to be not only a hypocrite, but you're going to be in trouble with the Lord. If you say, I'm only going to take care of people's physical needs, or I'm going to fight for equality in my country, but you don't give them the gospel, I've said this before, I'll say it again, social justice without the gospel is planting flower beds on the road to hell. It's making things look prettier. Hey, our country's getting better. Things are getting better. Without the gospel, we're still going to hell. So you can have your drink of water. But if that's all you get, you're still going to die. Apart from God. So we got to give them the drink of water. And we got to give them Jesus. I am... This is one of those sermons that if I am, and you don't have to worry about this, if I ever ran for president, they would pull back up and they'd say, did you hear what he said in this one Wednesday night Bible study? I was confused for a long time when I saw um, in professional football, I I watched some of it and I I saw the whole kneeling for the national anthem. You guys remember all this stuff? Like they still, on some of the ESPN shows, they still just talk about it all the time. And I was really kind of confused because I saw there's like a ridiculous amount of talking about it, but I didn't really know and I thought, well, you know, you know, some people say, this is your white privilege, stopping you from understanding it. But I was, I was confused because I thought, what's, what's happening? Like, why are you really kneeling? Well, because there's all problems, and we need, to, we need to do these problems, we need to work on these problems. And, and what I found over and over and over is I listened to all the talking heads talking about the kneeling, and there's so much confusion in our country. And some people who, who called themselves more patriotic were saying, you're not just disrespecting one element of America, it's all of America, and the people who died for America. And then the other people are saying, well, we need to do more than just kneeling. That's the easiest thing we can do. We're going to do something even more. And you're just like, what's, what's happening? What are we trying to get at here? Here's what I found. They were doing half of what they should have done. They were addressing issues. There's issues. That part of it could be a good thing. Now, do I agree with how they went about it? I'm not, I'm not saying all that. But here's what I didn't see, hardly at all. Anyone actually offering solutions. Well, we need to have this conversation. Great. Who has the conversation and when? <laughs> and what are we going to talk about? Like, what was the actual solution to any of it? At best, you might find some neighborhood groups start meeting together and conversations happen. Okay, that could be a good thing across the country. Here's how you want, you want to fix this thing? Here's what I could, I, this is all I could think about the whole time is, okay, there's an issue, I got the solution. I know this is crazy, it's called the Great Commission. We just go teach people about Jesus. We go make disciples. If I make one disciple in my life, I've done so much more than a million conversations. Because we can talk and the fence can be torn down, walls can be torn down, bridges can be built. But if we're not leading each other to Jesus, then we're going to sit in our sin. And nothing's really going to change. There's plenty of issues in our country, but making disciples of Jesus is the solution. Right now, we got, about two hours ago, I went and I saw... 15 to 20 people sitting out here as they were praying, as they were set off to go serve in a um, community, in a part of our community that we've been reaching out to for a long time. People who work in that community came back to work extra hours tonight. 
mowing lawns, cutting weeds. They're just going to go around and they're going to go door to door. They're going to help people. They know they're going to start in this place and they wanted to go. And, and part of the, the um, what they're gathering was people um, to just talk and listen to the homeowners and just chat with them. They ain't going to mow. They ain't going to weed eat. But they're going to talk. You see, we're taking care of physical needs. Um, but we're sharing Jesus too. And that, to me, is beautiful. And I don't think it's ironic that it's happening the same night we're talking about what social justice really needs to look like in the church. It's not social justice in place of the gospel. It's from the gospel, the outflow of it is taking care of people's needs. Number four, you got to learn that the church is held responsible church is held responsible. In verse 12, Nehemiah, after giving some solution, he says, then, he, then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. Great. Everyone's on board. Here's what Nehemiah does. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they promised. Why would he call the priests? Because it's the nobles and officials that need to do something. Those are the ones exacting interest. He never said that it was the priests exacting interest. He said it was the nobles and the officials. Why even get priests involved? Because Nehemiah is not just a good leader. He's a smart dude who follows God. And he knows, ultimately, you might not think this social justice issue that we're having has anything to do with spiritual things, but everything's spiritual. Everything's spiritual. And ultimately, the church is held accountable. Because it's God who's telling the church that we need to be more active in helping people out. We need to be taking care of things. And so the priests are like, yeah, you ain't got to involve me. But you're getting involved. You're going to make sure that we hold on to our word and we do as we said. Some people say, well, hey, I hear that. But we need to change laws in this country. Because it's the government who needs to fix things. I've talked to people. I had a conversation last week. I talked to someone. I said, what's the answer? said the government needs to step in and do some things. Some people think the government is the one going to be held accountable. Maybe in the eyes of democracy or a republic, but not in the eyes of God. You know who's going to be held accountable? It's the church. Now, I hope the church exists in the government. I hope we're making disciples of our politicians. But here's the issue. The fundamental issue with social justice is not circumstances. It's not simply um, people were dealt a, a bad hand. It's not even that, that some people have power that others don't. The fundamental issue of all social justice issues is sin. It's sin. Human hearts are wicked. And we want to get on top and we want to push others down so that we can stay on top. Some form or fashion of it, if you walk through every bit of it, human beings are wicked. And our, and our hearts are deceitful above all things. And here's the thing. We may need to change some laws in this country. We may. But no government and certainly no law can change the human heart. Only the gospel can. So you can talk all day long about all the laws that need to change. You know what humans are going to do? They're going to get around those laws. And they're still going to act wicked. And those laws will be self-serving to somebody. So if you're out there fighting to change the law, I'm not saying stop. 
I'm just saying. It needs to be about the gospel because that's the only thing that's going to change human hearts. I'll also say this. When you look at um, so much of the Old Testament, particularly Deuteronomy, and you look at the covenant that God made with the people, the Israelites, through Moses, and, and you see that so many of these laws about lending and, and not giving interest and, and, and jubilee and all the stuff that we've talked about, he's talking to a nation, the nation of Israel, but he's ultimately saying, this is what it looks like in a theocracy, when I'm in charge and you all just do what I say. Um, there's laws in a country, but God was giving the people, the church, these laws, and so this is how you're supposed to function. This means um, if, if we need to take a bigger role, the church, not just be the helpers to the government, not just expect the government to do everything in our communities, but we need to step up and say, okay, we need to take care of things. That's going to force us to make sure that we're not just some crusade uh, of preaching and, and then we don't ever actually help people. That means the church is going to have to get uncomfortable and have a holistic approach to ministry, meaning we take care of the whole person, not just the soul of the person, all of the person. So um, what do you do? Here, here's a few things just even from a, from a, a church-wide perspective. Um, if someone comes in for benevolence, here, here's kind of our policy. First time, someone comes in and says, I need money. I, need, I got a light bill. I got issues. Um, in a lot of ways, it's no questions asked. I listen to them. They could lie to me. Okay. They could tell me the truth. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk to them a little bit about Jesus, and I'm going to help them out if we can financially. It's not going to be a ton, um, but it's going to hopefully be something that can help them. Second time they come in, I'm going to say, Let's sit down and make a budget. Do you have a budget? Do you need help with a budget? Let's talk about your financial situation. Do you have a job? No, I don't have a job. Let's talk about resumes. Let's talk about applications. Let's talk about who's hiring. Let's talk about how we can start to see things change, all the while talking about the gospel. But you've got to help them. You've got to walk through. If we just give money, still saying you can hand a man a fish, you can give a man a fish, or you can teach him to fish, right? Feed him a day or feed him a lifetime. And you got to help them. Um, you talk about this coffee house strategy that, that, that we've thrown out there in the last couple of weeks. Some people say, that, that sounds silly. But when we go to these cities, we want to be able to help economically. On top of spiritual, it's not in place of spiritual stuff. It's from overflow of the spiritual stuff we're giving them. You look at this building. The one particular that we're, gonna, that we're looking at right now, it's way more space than we need. But most of the conversations we talk, we have is how many people, how many folks in the city are looking for space that they could rent cheaper and that literally the church would be in the center of this and we would have businesses, we'd have folks all around us. Some could be ministry stuff, some could just be folks in the, that just need place. I want them to look at the church and say, you are a blessing in ways that we didn't think. We just thought you wanted to preach to us. Well, we do want to preach to you. We want to get to know you. We want to love you. We want to walk with you. We want to help you. Last but not least, you guys doing all right? I just got, just got one more. We'll knock this out. Number five, learn that only God can cure injustice. Verse 13 says, I also shook out the fold of my garment. So this is a reference to what they would do often in the Old Testament. They'd shake out their clothes as a way of saying, I'm washing my hands clean of this and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. Mm. If you want to go back to Philippians 2, again, the emptying of Christ. 
Oh, man, what a, there's a correlation there we could talk a lot about. And all the assembly said, amen. <laughs> I mean, if you're like, I'm gonna, I want you all to be shaken out if you don't keep this promise. Amen. Praise the Lord. Like, did you guys hear that sermon? That wasn't actually a super encouraging for you. Um, praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. So you say, how in the world are you getting this from this verse? That only God can cure injustice. Because doesn't it say the people did as they promised? Yeah, they did in 440 BC. Let me ask you, did they always keep that promise? They did when this was written. Within 10, 15 years of all this happening, Nehemiah wrote it. Looks like from this first or from this passage, he says, "I was angry." He wrote this firsthand. Hundred years later, did they keep that promise? No. Four hundred and forty years later, we know this: God of the universe, who didn't deserve death, they killed. And in between that, there's a whole bunch of injustice that took place. I don't know. I don't know what is good enough in our country. I don't know when people are going to say there's no injustice. I don't know when we get to that tipping point where we say, yep, things have changed. It's amazing now. I'm afraid that's an imaginary line. Because someone's always going to be oppressing someone. But we've got to recognize our social justice in the church is an earthly representation of the gospel, which is social justice in heaven. It's a God who spiritually has redeemed us, paid our debt, blesses the poor in spirit, sets the captives free, makes the first, last, and fulfilled justice by taking sin on himself and giving us his righteousness. There's so much justice that has taken place spiritually through the cross. And so our earthly social justice needs to be a reflection of that, not in place of that. Here's what Jesus did. He turned this world upside down. People don't understand. They don't understand the beauty of an upside down kingdom unless they understand that Jesus coming to earth had all the power, all the authority, all the control, all the rights to be one with God, all the equality, and he laid it all down. You see, when people see, when people see that, they're going to want to praise God. Because they say, that don't make sense. I don't want the world to look at each other and say, okay, we're all equal, this makes sense. I want them to look at the church who humbled themselves and exalted their neighbors and says, that doesn't make sense, why would you do that? I want them to see that our sacrifice points to another sacrifice. I, I, I want them to recognize that when ultimately they see us living under this king, in this kingdom, they're going to want to bow down to Jesus. There's three men, I'm going to leave you with this, three mighty men who show us something beautiful. When King David was running in 2 Samuel chapter 23, I don't know if you remember this story or not, but I'm going to read it to you, encourage you, and we'll get out of here tonight. It says this, 2 Samuel 23, verses 13 through 17. <clears throat> and three of the 30 chief men, so these are the mighty men. Remember, he had the super awesome warriors that went around David all the time. Just amazing. And this is in the middle of, um, this chapter is about how 
they did amazing, awesome things. And he says, these chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam. So things aren't going great for David. But these guys came to him. And when, I, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephim, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrisons of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. So he's losing his country. He's hiding in a cave. Life is not great. And David said longingly, ooh, this is great, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So he looks down at his city that he doesn't have control of anymore and says, Oh my gosh, I ain't eating good up here. Probably not drinking great. I want to be back in my homeland. I went from being on top to now I'm down here. Uh, uh, things have changed in my life and this isn't good. I, would ju- I just want a, just a taste of that water down there. He's just sitting there daydreaming. But they overhear this. It says, Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem. So they power through these Philistines. David's in a cave for a reason. If it was easy to overcome the Philistines, he wouldn't be up there. And his own people, but that's a whole other story. And drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. This is crazy. But he would not drink of it. So they went and got all this water. They got this water for him. I heard what you said. You ever buy someone a gift and they're like, how'd you know? It's like, well, you mentioned it three years ago. He's like, I can't believe you remembered. You would do that for me? But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? And therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. When David sees a supernatural sacrifice by these men, he sacrifices to the supernatural God. And that's what we want. That's what we want because here's the the reality. Ultimately, when people see a voluntary injustice, an upside-down kingdom where we as the church humble ourselves and say, we're going to not just make you equal with us, we're going to exalt you because we're submitting to a holy God and it's going to radically blow you away Equality is good, but voluntary inequality is better because it points not just to we were all created in the image of God, which is beautiful, equality. It points to a God who sacrificed on the cross. And ultimately, let's just flip to the last last chapter, how this whole thing plays out. Equality is guaranteed. Equality in life is guaranteed. You say, well, what are you talking about? We will all be equally blessed in heaven, in that heaven is a place of blessing, or equally cursed if we're in hell. So equally, one way or the other, we go into one of those two. But before then, the church has an opportunity to live in an upside-down kingdom where we radically serve until Jesus radically saves a bunch of people who need to see a supernatural sacrifice in us that points them to a supernatural sacrifice in Jesus so that they sacrifice their lives to a supernatural God. Let's pray.